0: Realistically, it's probably 40 to 60 interviews that just occurred, whether it was exploratory or validation, that happened even before we really wrote the first line of code.
1: Welcome to How I Fixed It, a podcast where we cut the noise and learn step-by-step strategies entrepreneurs use to grow. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Curtis Eisler, the co-founder of Mesos. Mesos is an agricultural technology company that builds smart sensors for farmers to make better decisions. And I'm very excited to learn more about Curtis's focus on customer interviews at Mesos, especially because he's done over 200 of them. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. And I'm very excited to learn a little bit about Mesos and especially your expertise with validation interviews. But before we dive into things, I'd love to hear just a little bit about you as a person.
0: Absolutely. So well, thank you very much for having me on today. Very happy to be here. And so essentially, I'm Curtis Eisler, the co-founder, but also the product lead for Mesos Technologies. And so essentially at Mesos, we're focused on empowering farmers through the use of an innovative, low cost and scalable IoT microclimate monitoring network. And so a little bit about that is is essentially a bunch of just uh, distributed sensors throughout, uh, throughout a field, which can, at the end of the day, bring back data that can then, through our algorithms, provide insights for optimizing A variety of different tasks throughout the field, whether it's scouting, spraying, or harvest. So scouting is essentially when a farmer or a farmhand will walk through and check their crops. And so if you're if you're a vineyard owner, they like checking the quality, or at least the perceived health when looking at it visually, and ensuring that everything looks like it's going properly. Um, I actually grew up in agriculture, and that's a huge reason why I got into this space. I'm very passionate about it. I'm also a fourth-year mechatronics engineering student at the University of Waterloo. And so being at University of Waterloo, that was a huge reason why I decided to go into entrepreneurship. I've always been entrepreneurial, but at the same time, the motivation that the University of Waterloo provides to get into the ecosystem was a huge reason I got in and really my team got in so early. I always knew it would be a part of my path, but the resources they have available, that's a hundred percent would help push me to where I am now.
1: Yeah, that's amazing to hear, especially for future students who might be interested Could you give some examples of someone walks into a field and what exactly will they see your technology doing?
0: Absolutely. So essentially, let's say a farmer has their phone in a field. As long as they have a cellular connection, Wi-Fi, anything along those lines, they can access the data and the insights that we provide. But essentially, when you go to the field, what you're going to see from us is a series of distributed nodes or sensor bricks, Um, these little boxes. Uh, What they have inside is, in a way, weather stations. And so we have what we call the stem node, which is the base station, which there's usually one of these per field, which get the more consistent metrics across the field, such as uh, wind or precipitation. But then we also have a series of distributed nodes throughout the field, and we call these the leaf nodes. And so essentially, these leaf nodes, they'll pick up metrics that would tend to vary more across the field, such as soil moisture or humidity or anything along these lines as that will vary across the field. But additionally, what we're building out right now is the next step of notifications and insights that really allow you to then go, oh, shoot, that's looking like we have inc- uh, inclement freezing warning coming on. We have the temperature rapidly dropping uh, that can help help them preserve the yield that they have in, in really in production. And it could also be disease-based as if there's a certain threat of a certain disease being present we will then provide an actionable insight to that, such as powdery mildew. And it's all of these next steps which can help farmer go from the conventional way of spraying when they just think they might want to spray to actually spraying when spray should be applied so you're minimizing that expense.
1: Mm. And spray there is insecticide. So regarding the example you gave there of you know pest control or maybe freezing weather, what are some problems that this equipment is meant to handle? And how did you realize that you know, a solution was needed here.
0: Absolutely. So I can go all the way back if you'd like and kind of talk about like the the process. And so essentially the way this all got started was way back. It'd be about a year. uh, Essentially what happened was me and a couple of my roommates who are now my fellow co-founders of Mesos. What we were doing was we were looking into the problem space of agriculture. And so to get started with all of this, we were like, hmm, well, of course, I have some farming background. Jack has some great background. We don't know that much really in the grand scheme of things. We need to know more information in order to even move forward with trying to create a solution because if you don't know the problem, you're just kind of shooting in the dark when trying to make a solution. And I know tech is cool and you know making sensors and stuff is awesome. But at the same time, if you want to maximize the work that you're doing and you really want to make sure it's going to be sellable at the end of the day, make sure that you have a target customer in mind. And so the way we did this, was we started going through what we considered our exploratory interview round, or our first one. And so the way that worked was we had roughly 25 or so exploratory interviews to get started. And just the pure basis of what the exploratory interviews were about was just to get a better idea for the problem space. And so we just started reaching out to different types of farmers. Now, whether they're doing grapes or orchards or cash crops, we've talked to anyone. Uh, we just want to hear, okay, Who are the different people involved? Who are the different stakeholders? What are their pain points? What do they get excited about? Like, just give us anything. So we're kind of fishing for information at this point, just to give more insight into this this industry. Um, And then from this, we had suspected user personas. User personas, of course, being a a category of a kind of a generalized user that you you may or may not address in an iteration of your product, for example, uh, could be a vineyard owner. And so a vineyard owner, we would give them some arbitrary name tom make it more relatable so instead of saying vineyard owner we say tom and everyone on the team knows who we're talking about and so with tom per se we would then start getting insights into okay we know that being a vineyard owner they're of course very concerned about any sort of weather fluctuations that may exist on on that vineyard while they're trying to grow these grapes as we know whether it's weather fluctuations or disease if that vine gets damaged They have to rip that out potentially. And if they rip it out, it'll be three years to replace and reproduce that same quantity and quality of grapes potentially. So it's devastating if they have to completely clear house and potentially clear a block or a section of vines. So with more interviews comes more clarification into user personas, but also starting to figure out more about their pain points, which kind of ties over to the second aspect of interviews, which is once you start hearing about pain points, you start figuring out their problems. And once you find out the problems, you go, wait, now we can start kind of thinking about potential solutions. And that gets more to the validation realm, where now we're reaching out potentially to the same people. If you keep a good connection, keep good contact with them, you can start potentially asking more zoned in questions. So after the exploratory, we're like, let's focus on microclimate monitoring, weather, pests, disease, any of that. And so we wanted the validation going, okay, let's ask some more tailored questions to discover if this is the right path to go down. And so we'd ask questions regarding expenses for sprays, um, asking about how often they have their wind machine on and what would trigger that to go on if we're still talking about Tom and the vineyard example. And essentially, you would refine the list of assumptions and hypotheses that you would really want to test throughout this validation. And so with assumptions, that's just internally what we think the reality of, per say grape growing is. But hypotheses are based on those assumptions and need to be tested in order to move really to move that product aspect forward, because that's the whole idea of product validation is you need to validate that hypothesis before you then put in development time. And so that really, at the end of the day, that just saves you time and resources, especially for when you're a bootstrap startup, you just want to make sure you're hitting the mark as quickly as possible, but also as accurately as possible.
1: Yeah. I appreciate the examples you provided there. Let's dive deeper into that first part. So when you were starting with the exploratory interviews, the questions are really important because if you have the wrong questions, then it's really easy to just fit reality into the bubble you want it to be, right? How did you think about, okay, which questions do we want to ask?
0: Essentially when it comes to exploratory interviews. One big thing being that we wanted to just go out and try to collect as much information possible initially, being that this is the first time we were really jumping into the agriculture space, but also the tech space, was we wanted to just go in there, figure out a lot of information about the person themselves, figure out about about their experience, how long they've been working in the industry, what kind of trends have they observed. And so more kind of vetting the actual persona themselves and kind of helping figure out where they fit into the bigger piece of because once you interview so many people, you need to start utilizing, or at least in our case, we utilize the user persona, and so this helped categorize people, and so this help this kind of information when talking about their experience would help fill out that user persona, which could then help later on with development when we say uh, Tom, the example of a vineyard owner, uh, we know more information about Tom and what. Are his goals? What are his worries? And so we talk a little bit about him or like the vineyard owner when we're talking to them in the exploratory interview. What are they looking for? So that helps there on top of that. Then we start building out to more everyday tasks. So walk us through your typical day. So that is a huge one that we would typically ask is walk, walk us through your typical day. And as they're walking through it, um, we're really not trying to just blatantly be like, tell us your biggest problems. Like what, what are your biggest problems? Because Essentially, sometimes it's hard to think back through like it, when you're asked that question in the moment being like, well, goodness, I mean, I, I guess I had a problem with manure spraying a little bit back. But I mean, essentially, it's it's a lot better to slowly walk them through exactly like what kind of routine do they follow. And as you walk them through, you kind of take them on that journey through their mind and through their experience. And when you do that, you're able to help better identify okay, when I was doing this process, even if it was just yesterday, and I'm on this journey, I did run into this problem. So actually, yeah, no, that I, that is actually something I'll mention. And that's great, because we found out certain aspects along the line, such as what causes scouting per se. And if there's not frequent enough scouting, then what do they do in the event of that? Or how do they record all of this information? And so that would bring up certain problems, like we've done paper for years, but You do end up forgetting things or losing things, and it's hard to cross-reference information. And so you just gotta walk through the entire process. So that's a huge part about exploratory, is just let them talk 90% of the time. Or really the only things that really like me as a product manager, only things I'm really saying are prompts to get them to keep talking about certain areas if I want them to focus in on something, or just go off on a more general question. I'm never trying to feed them answers. And so I, I shouldn't. I guess for example one example would be so when you're doing your regular duties such as if you're going in scouting you know what would you do it's kind of a loaded and focused question there as I focused specifically on scouting in the second half of the question while well, I should have just been saying like what are you typically doing for your responsibilities like what do you do during your your daily tasks and so you got to be very careful that you don't start guiding them down because if I ask that full question like that where I mentioned the scouting They might just talk about scouting and then I'll have to re-ask the question to get more information about the other aspects. So be careful to go in with each question, having a specific single purpose in mind. And then you can always ask follow-ups to zero back in if you wanted to talk more about scouting.
1: I think that's a really useful aspect of the exploratory interviews, especially the, the guidance on these are the loaded questions and here are, here's how you would change that to a better question now when you've done the exploratory interviews you have a chunk of data like when i've done that in the past it's just like a mess of like long written notes across 25 files and even when i'm reviewing that there's the potential for bias like this seems like a good idea bold it uh, whenever i come back to the notes i focus on that how do you make sure that A, everyone on the team is informed of the information you learn? And then B, how do you try to review all the information so that you don't miss out on any parts?
0: That's a great question. So essentially, when it comes to, per se, keeping everyone on the same plane, because me, I'm very product-focused. Jack, one of my co-founders and CEO of Meso's, uh, he's very business focused and also, you know, we all assist with other hats too. But then Brandon, he's very much tech focused. And so I would be the main one going out and talking with these potential stakeholders. And, and one big thing that was important to me was to ensure, to really ensure alignment between the entire team. And, and of course, I should also put a little uh, message with this. is It's easier with a smaller team getting started as we were actually roommates at the time too. So we could just quick gather in the kitchen or in one of our bedrooms and just be okay, hey, I'm about to go meet with this one vineyard owner, and this is these are the questions, these are the standard questions because I would have a template ready. These are the questions where I intend to, you know, ask what I want to focus on, and these questions, this template would be generated through a predefined set of assumptions or hypotheses that I'd want to try to validate throughout that conversation because. Realistically, interviews are, it's really only one form of validation at the end of the day. You can have surveys, you can have like in-person shadowing. There's a lot of different ways that you can validate ideas. Interview is just one. So then once I go into an interview with this list of questions on a template that I created from a list of hypotheses that I wanted to prove out, one big thing that I would do is then record as many notes as I could during, because as mentioned, a huge thing about these interviews is I want to have them talk as much as possible so I can collect as much information as possible because it's only a fixed amount of time that you have available with this potential stakeholder. You might only ask for a 30-minute window. Well, you want to maximize how much time that they're giving you data and that you want to minimize how often you're doing the talking. And so one big thing, though, is I'd be crazy scrambling down notes. And then after, I would put, because quite often... I might be jumping around some of the prompts. And so after I would create a polished version that have the answers to the prompts in the right area. Uh, but then following that, I would, for the first few interviews, I would just use a template as mentioned, keep it in a drive, in a folder, and it could always be referenced later. But as I found that more people were being interviewed, I would then start to, you know, group these different interview sheets or people I'd interview On these templates. So, these documents I would group into folders. And so they would be grouped in the folders based on user personas. And then, as even more and more information would come in, more interviews, a big thing I would do is start using an Excel spreadsheet. Essentially, one big thing to take out of this is you don't need any sort of fancy software to get up and going Um, at the end of the day. You just need, essentially, you need some form of Word document editor, maybe Excel spreadsheet. On top of that, you need a phone number, maybe a video communication platform, if you'd rather do that than a phone call, but also you just need the motivation to keep going out and talking to people. Once you start having all these interviews, as you're saying, it's very hard to manage looking at, well, first of all, you either have to keep it all this information just straight in your mind about, okay, who said what? And you got to try to create insights from that, but that's just not feasible. And then especially as your company grows, you need to be able to convey this information to more and more people. Well, you could try to sit there at a table in front of the other members of the team and try to be like, oh, but I remember this one person said this, or you could point at the spreadsheet and show the trends. And so that's a huge thing that was very useful to me, especially as we were scaling up, both with people, as we now have a couple of co-ops on with us right now, but also with the number of interviews.
1: Yeah, I really admire all the actionability of those tips and Continuing on with very precise things, I'd want to ask about the user persona you were mentioning. What are some characteristics of what makes a good user persona?
0: So when it comes to user personas, the big thing here that you're trying to achieve is trying to create one representation for, per se, a group of potential users. And so a potential stakeholder, such as with the previous example, Tom, the vineyard owner. And so on this user persona, it's, it's generally a document that you might keep somewhere on the drive so anyone can reference. So a few kind of key elements that are usually on one of these user personas, just for friendliness, give this user persona a name, such as when I mentioned Tom. And so and then, then you can say Tom, the vineyard owner, as opposed to just saying the vineyard owner. And after that point, people within the organization will just be like, oh yeah, no, Tom. And, and, and you know, anyone new might be like, well, who's Tom? But eventually you learn and it's just so much easier be able to convey and say Tom to represent the entire user persona, um, because really at the end of the day, it's more than just the position. It's really an identity that you're trying to represent when creating a user persona. A few different bits of information that you might include on this would per se be occupation, like what's their job. Another one would be per se the location. For us, we're looking at vineyards all across Canada. We're mainly focusing in Ontario right now. When you're looking across Ontario, when you're looking across Canada. Even into the States, there's a lot of different locations where you have vineyards. But also a key part of this is different locations for vineyards have different needs at the end of the day, such as, for example, down in California, irrigation management is a huge concern. And so therefore, if you have a persona that's based for California, you can then give more insight into what are their frustrations or what are their likes and dislikes. Might attach like a little icon or a photo just to once again, make it look like this is a person you might do, you know, what's what motivates them? What are their goals? Those are a couple other elements that are essentially really useful, because at the end of the day, whenever, whenever you're trying to create a feature, you want it to be user-driven, and so you want to make sure whatever you're creating at the end of the day is going to help the users. And so if you can then, when you're proposing a feature, back that up with, so like let's say this feature is going to provide more insight into if there's an inclement frost warning coming. Let's say if we're talking about Niagara Falls, Ontario, you're a vineyard owner. If there's an inclement frost warning and I'm proposing we add that new feature to our platform, I can then be like, well, you see Tom, the vineyard owner, well, this is very important to him because we know that let's say if a freeze comes over, this could wipe out a portion or the entire crop, which is devastating, not just for that year, but for the next few years, as we wait for the vines that they have to be uh, ripped out to grow back up. So you just always want to be able to back up whatever you're hoping to propose as a product with user personas, and the user personas are derived from the user interviews that you conduct.
1: Yeah, I think it's really nice, that example of I can solve frustration X with solution Y, that's why it's a good idea. So you have your hypotheses that on the vineyard owner, their biggest problems are one, two, three. Which questions do you ask to validate that?
0: Absolutely. So core questions that would come up here is let's say this is someone who I haven't interviewed before because I'm I might not have done an exploratory interview with them before and so I would once again want to talk to them a little bit about their experience what got them into the field how long they've been there all of that kind of information but let's say then again I have talked to them before so one thing here would be that okay how much are they currently spending on this problem let's say when it comes to vineyards how much are they currently spending on spray um, per acre And so now we have some form of metric that we can work against, Uh, let's say, if we're creating a solution that can help reduce that, well, how much do we have to save them per acre on spray to make our solution profitable or desirable to them? We'd probably start off the conversation saying something like, thank you very much for joining me today. So one big area where I want to focus in today is monitoring for disease or monitoring for pests or monitoring for weather. And so... A question that I would ask would be essentially, tell me a little bit more about the workflow that goes into deciding when you're going to spray. And so a big thing that happens there is, I read this really good book a while back, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. And so essentially, you need some sort of trigger that would then go across in the mind, you know, whether it's a time of year or a certain weather event has happened, or any form of indication, or maybe they're already using some form of technology, maybe any of these triggers, no matter what it is, they may have a role in, in really playing out, okay, when do I want to spray my field? So that's a pretty big thing here is really figuring out what are those triggers? What do they use today? And as they're talking about it, they might talk about pains or any form of problem that exists with you know, trying to figure out today if today is the day to spray. And one thing could be, let's say, for example, if I'm going to look at the weather to, but I'm using the regional weather forecast. And so let's say this weather station is like 20 kilometers away. One element that you might consider is how strong the wind is, or if precipitation is expected, when you want to do some spray. So essentially, you'll look at this information at the weather station. And they might be talking about like, Oh, how I t- uh, tune into the regional weather station, I pull in this information, this helps me decide. And I might be like, okay, wonderful. So tell me what kind of information that you would pull from the weather station. Well, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for wind. I'm looking for precipitation. Okay, that's wonderful. I'd be like, okay, so tell me about a time when this did not fulfill your needs. At the end of the day, you're going to go in with maybe four questions for 30 minutes. But the big thing that you got to keep in mind is that there will always be these branch off questions. And so you have to balance between kind of letting the conversation run free and let the interviewee kind of go on and talk more about their problems and their pain points, which is incredible. You want them to keep talking, but at the same time, you have to keep in mind time where time is going on. And if you let, you know, question one and two run too long, you might not have que- uh, time for questions three or four. You could always ask if they have more time near, uh, near the end of the interview, if it's running long, but you can't count on it.
1: Yeah. I think it's an important skill that you learn exactly as you said on the job. So all of this happened, like all of this happened before you even started working on the product.
0: Exactly. I think we had probably somewhere between 40 and 50 interviews, give or take a little bit. Realistically, it's probably 40 to 60 interviews that just occurred, whether it was exploratory or validation that happened even before we really wrote the first line of code. And so of course, like keep in mind that Brendan and Jack were probably at this point hypothesizing potential solutions, being that, you know, we're an engineer, and we love to think about solutions. But the key thing at the end of the day was really, really making sure that we had a well defined problem, even before we start developing that solution. Because like, even myself, I was still thinking about like, you, you can't help yourself sometime when you're, you, you're on a call, and you're, you're thinking about, a, you know, of the problem that the person's describing, and you're like, gosh, you know, actually, what if you tried doing this, but The whole point of the interviews this early on is to not get weighed down by one idea of a solution. You got to make sure you fully explore the problem space because if you tie yourself to one solution too early on, you might have missed something completely revolutionary later on.
1: Yeah. And that's actually an aspect that I'm curious about. So you did these 50 to 60 interviews. How long did that take time-wise?
0: Growing up in agriculture, I very much leaned on a few connections that I had already established growing up. Family friends, um, Jack and Brandon did the same. We were able to pool together a variety of different people with different experiences, all tying back to agriculture that we could then interview. And we were able to get that together within a month to a month and a half, maybe two months, but no longer than two months, where essentially we were out contacting as many people as possible. I would just use a phone because of course with COVID, I very much like going in person and doing kind of exploratory interviews and you can kind of like watch the process, learn way more than you can behind a phone or a video camera. But essentially, for COVID reasons, these calls over the cell phone would take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. I guess that was one benefit of just doing it over the phone is you could stack multiple back to back to back and not have to worry about the time or transportation element of having to get to and from the different places to interview and talk more about on on the farm or in the vineyard. And so this would have happened about a, a month to a month and a half maybe two months.
1: That's really fast. I would have expected like closer to 4 months, but I guess if you asked me to go find a bunch of farmers to talk to, I don't have any connections, so maybe that was what sped you up.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'd say the big thing here was keeping in mind I talked to a lot of the same farmers twice, once for exploratory and once for validation. And so, keeping in mind that 60 interviews, or even let's say the 50 interviews is realistically probably 30 farmers that I interviewed 20 of them twice, just because I asked different questions the second time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it sounds nice in theory, you know, you just do step one, step two, step three. But in reality, how did you convince these people to give up their time for you?
0: All of these farmers were very generous when it came to finding time for me and my team to talk to them very much appreciate their time. I guess one element of it would be essentially when I was going in to email them. Hello, I'm an electronics engineering student at the University of Waterloo. I'm currently working with a couple classmates, and we are looking to do more research into this area. And we feel like with your insight and expertise, it would be quite valuable to ask you a few questions to really make sure that we're well informed before continuing with our project. I know it was definitely a longer email than that, but that's like the core foundation is just hi, we're students, we would love to get any information you can. Do so you have 15 to 30 minutes and most of the time they would reply back? Uh, yes, no, that'd be awesome. We we always love sharing information, uh, especially with helping students. And so I will say we definitely and this was something we were kind of advised through our concept and other coaches to, to really use the student card. Because realistically, people like to help students, especially if it's students who are passionate about solving a problem that they experience. And so That's one big thing that we wanted to mention. We wanted to be transparent and people were very eager to help. And we are very appreciative of that.
1: Yeah, it is a crazy process. And I think you were well prepared to head into it. Myself, my experience with interviews has always been go into it, fail, and then be advised by other people. You should have read this before you went in. So one last question that I would love to wrap up with is... If you could recommend any resources so that, unlike me, people are more like yourself and are better prepared to go into these things, what would they be?
0: So a couple books, actually, that my mentor actually advised I read very early on in the game, include The Build Trap or Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry. Incredible resource. I used it very early on. An absolute classic as well is The Lean Startup. And so this is by Eric Ries, I believe. Uh, Also, an incredible book. And then finally, the the last book that I utilized, very handy, it was The Mom Test. And so, this book actually was, it's by Rob Fitzpatrick. This is a very handy book and probably the one that's the most specifically tailored to this application here. But the thing about The Mom Test at the end of the day is that The Mom Test is all about just a simple set of rules, which really allows you to craft the best questions possible to ensure that you're not getting some sort of loaded response or or a friendly lie at the end of the day about whether it's a good product or if they're willing to buy it or anything along those lines. And no one here is trying to lie to really hurt you. Actually, it's quite the opposite. If anyone's lying here when, when they're telling, oh, this sounds like a great idea, is what they're trying to do is avoid hurting your feelings. Essentially, it's always easier to just say, oh, this is a great idea. Oh, this is, yeah, oh yeah, of course. And would I be interested in buying this? Come to me in six months when you have this developed. And then you'd be like, oh, oh yes, okay, we have a potential user. We have someone who might actually buy. No, 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 that's not the case. And so the mom test is all about just making sure you have good questions that people just can't lie to you about.
1: Amazing. I'll make sure to link those books in the resources or in the description. I really appreciate you taking the time to especially give all these examples. I think it's been really engaging the way you talk about Tom, the vineyard owner, throughout.
0: Absolutely. Well, always more than happy to talk. And thank you very much for reaching out to me and for having me on your podcast.